Good morning, Outlook family. It is good to see everyone this morning, and welcome back to our crew from CIY Move. So glad that you had a great week. So glad. I am standing up here with an all-around awesome person. If you're newer to Outlook, you may not have ever had the chance to meet her. Her name is Robin Priest. For 18 years, she was the minister here at Outlook on our staff until her retirement in 2018. So, she's been here a long time and a big part of our church's uh, history and who we are as a church. Much of it is thanks to simply who she is. Before she served here at Outlook, she and her husband Doug served as missionaries for 17 years in Kenya, Tanzania, and Singapore. And on top of all that, she performed Tamarnaya's wedding. So, very happy about that. Um, she has a Master of Arts in Ministry from Lincoln Christian Seminary. She is one of my greatest friends, and honestly, we were th talking about this earlier, one of my longest friends. I can't think of too many people in my life who've been my friend as long as Robin Priest has. I love her very, very much. Tamara and I both do. She is a great preacher of God's Word, called out of retirement to bless us today. This is my all-request summer request that you get to listen to God's Word through His servant. Robin Priest. So, enjoy. Thanks, Robin, Just, very much. Thank you, Rob. Love you. Love you, too. I don't know, that kind of made me sound like I'm old. Yeah, it's a lot of years doing other stuff. Thank you, Rob, very much. It's been, uh, it's a treat to be here with you today, and I tell you, it has been a treat. It was a treat when I was on staff at Outlook. Working with Rob, I have my master's because of Rob. Like, I would not have done it if he hadn't literally made it impossible not to get my master's. He brought a program here to this church, and I'm not the only one that can say that. So he is special to me. This, you are special to me. This church is a special church. And uh, I'm really considered a privilege to be here this morning. So as you know, we're in our All Request Summer Series. Last week, Rob spoke about the second coming of Christ, his return, and it's a perfect lead-in to our subject today. I'm gonna mash together two of your requests. A little ambitious, you know, but I like a challenge. The first one was asking for clarity on judgment and, and uh, grace, and the other was how are Christians supposed to live and behave in an evil world, in a time where there's so much darkness and evil around us. Now your requests aren't exactly summer beach reads, are they? So we, we need to get to work. Our basic framework this morning is first to look at God's part in judging evil, and then to look at our part as Christians in responding to the evil around us. So the word, uh, we first need to look at the word evil, right? Get an idea of what terms we're talking about and what the Bible means by evil. The word translated into English from the Greek word uh, evil, that Greek word is kakos, kakos. It means something that's intrinsically worthless and that when you look at it, it's depraved. You know it when you see it. It's an action that is harmful, hurtful or injurious, or something done with an evil intent. Now, if your ear's noticing what mine notices, it kind of sounds like what it is. Kakos, kaka, it's yucky, it's bad. But it's not funny, 
It's, uh, it's meant to be bad. It's not just bad, it means to be bad, and it means to bring about bad. I don't know about you, but it seems to me sometimes like the world is getting darker and more evil every day. I can tell you that the news media wants us to think that, it seems like. If you're a grandparent like me, you worry about what your grandkids will face. You parents wonder how to shield your children from the evil influences around them. And, and so we hear constant reports in the news of ch violence, child abuse, human and drug trafficking, addiction, systems that reward greed and people who prey on the poor and vulnerable. And I'm sure other evils come to your minds. Evil, by nature and intent, works against God's good purposes for humans. He, it keeps us from enjoying and experiencing the abundance and flourishing life God wants us to, all to enjoy. So now that we're clear on evil, we're gonna look at the first passage this morning. It's the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13. And I think it shows us some important things about God's judgment of evil. The main takeaway I want us to focus on is ending evil is God's job. The parable of the wheat and the weeds is one of several parables Jesus told to describe what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus tells the story and then, as often he must do, <laughs> has to explain what it means to his disciples when they ask about it. I want you to pay attention to the different players, characters in the parable, and what they represent, and then God's timing. And kind of find yourself in this parable. What, which one are you? What are you? The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, the worker asked. No, he replied, you'll uproot the weed if you do. Let both grow until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to go out to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. Then, leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house. His disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The son of man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil and the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Now it is good news to me that evil will be dealt with. God is just and merciful. One day we will no longer have to face, have to endure evil systems or people or practices. Jesus has promised to end them. 
No more war or violence or child abuse, no more oppression or injustice, no more greed or cheating, no more preying on the poor and vulnerable, no more harm, just the abundant, flourishing life that God intends for us. Think about the evil you'd like to see done away with. Jesus will end it. But it is clear that that time is not yet. The farmer's workers in the parable ask if he wants them to pull up the weeds immediately, but the farmer tells them to wait. Now this might have sounded kind of familiar to a couple of Jesus' disciples who once asked if they could call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village because it refused to let them spend the night while they were on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus told those disciples off. I don't think he'd tell us any differently today. But why the wait? Why not now? God can do right whatever he wants. He once destroyed the world in a, in a flood, we understand, when he saw that everything humans thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Now, sometimes it feels like we're getting kind of close to that, right? But note that the farmer in the parable is patient. He knows that pulling up the weeds will uproot the wheat before it has a chance to fully develop. He will get no harvest at all. Now this particular type of weed, called a tear, looks a lot like wheat. We've got a picture here. And they're tough to tell apart, right? Now if we stuck a few daylilies in there, this would look exactly like my front garden. And I tell you, I would welcome any angels who want to come help me separate the wheat from the tares there. God in his patience and grace and wisdom waits. Like I'm waiting for the rain because it makes it a whole lot easier to pull out weeds. But God waits and he knows the right time. He knows that ending evil takes away the opportunity for a person or society, society to repudiate their evil acts and to change, to turn to God. It also somehow can set back the good he wants to grow in us. This parable suggests that God in this time between the resurrection and Jesus' return somehow brings about good in us as we endure uh, dark and evil times. Like Joseph said to his brothers at the end of Genesis, the brothers who threw him in a ditch and tried to uh, kill him and then thought better of it and sold him to slave traders, Joseph told them, you meant what you did for evil, but God has turned it out to mean good. God doesn't just end evil, he uses it for good. And it frustrates the heck out of evil. So it is not on us to seek and destroy evil. We are not some superheroes, you know, God is using. We are not the angels, we are the wheat. It is possible to mistake good for evil and evil for good. Often in our zeal to get rid of what seems evil to us, we can set back good in ways we don't anticipate. And I can share an example of this from when we lived as missionaries in East Africa. My husband Doug and I lived in a small village of people who lived off their herds of uh, cows and sheep and goats. They needed a lot of hands to keep the flocks thriving and they had multiple wives to provide enough children to herd the animals. Now, as you can imagine, this presented a challenge. They knew Christians had only one wife. 
For years, many missionaries taught that to become a follower of Jesus, men had to give up all but one wife. Women had no say in this, by the way. Of course, the husband chose his youngest wife because she could continue to give him children. Wives that were divorced, because that's what happened, had to leave their children with the husband and became poor. So we did not uh, decide, our mission decided not to encourage divorce and the separation of mothers and children and we decided that it was a bad idea to increase poverty. So we did not insist on monogamy as a prerequisite to becoming a Christian. We taught husbands to love their wives equally and to refrain from taking more wives once they became Christians and then to raise their children to be monogamous. This kind of change of an entire social order and economy takes time and we trusted that the Holy Spirit would lead believers toward this biblical practice of marriage in his time. And that is what happened. Now, please understand, I am not saying, nor is scripture saying, that anyone who is not Christian is evil. Different opinions or approaches to life, lack of knowledge or wisdom, or even much that we consider immoral is not necessarily evil. We should be very careful before calling people or their ideas evil or demonic when they are merely different, unwise, immature, or immoral by our standards. So what do we do uh, until the time Jesus returns and ends evil forever? This leads to our second point. Our job is to keep evil from overcoming us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul advises the Christians in Corinth, who lived in a very pagan culture and were pretty concerned about it. He said that when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. That was a real problem in this society and in the church. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Now, Paul says we're to take seriously evil and immoral behavior in ourselves and the church. Now, maybe you, like me, that feels a little threatening, right? Here we are sitting with each other. It feels a little uncomfortable, and it should. If we feel eager to call out our fellow believers for wrong behavior, we should take a breath. I sometimes, maybe you have too, hear people justify their quickness to publicly rebuke or call out a fellow believer or anybody by saying, it's time to turn over some tables. And they're referring, of course, to the time that Jesus went into the temple and cleared out the stalls of the money changers and religious product sellers who were cheating pilgrims who came to celebrate the Jewish festivals. What they overlook is that first, we're not Jesus. And second, 
Jesus saw the thievery and corruption going on in his father's house on the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and then went back to Bethany and slept on it, spent the night, prayed about it. He made the next day, he went back to the temple and made clear what he thought about the corrupt practices going on under the guise of piety. Sometimes it is necessary, and when it is on us to call out wrong, we should sleep on it and pray about it before we proceed. Paul also says it's not our business to judge or even avoid immoral behavior, immoral non-believers. Demonizing those outside the church, honestly, is often a convenient distraction from doing the work of examining ourselves. It's just so much easier to look and point out what somebody else is doing. We begin always with our own hearts and actions. Jesus told religious people to worry less about the bad influences, the things they ate that they thought were not kosher or would make them impure, and to focus instead on the serious evil in our own hearts. He said, it's what comes from the inside that defiles you, for from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. It's a good long list. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. They're what give us trouble. The longer I live, the more aware I am of the evil and darkness in my own heart. And I am glad God will someday end it forever, that he's ending it now, because I trust his judgment more than my own. I know he loves me, and he wants me to thrive. He wants good for me. But I have to say, I am also really grieved at the darkness and outright evil within the church today, becoming known after being ignored too long. It's become fodder for podcasts and documentaries that the world is judging us, and rightly so in many of these instances. We are making God's job much harder. We are certainly making it harder for our not yet believing friends, family, children, and neighbors to want anything to do with God or with us. We need to check ourselves and live up to our calling as God's beloved children, light in a dark world. So let's finish off by remembering what that looks like. Our final passage, Romans 12, 14 to 21, speaks for itself. The last sentence is our final point. Our job, as I said, is to keep evil from overcoming us, and instead, we overcome evil with good. Here's what Paul wrote to the Romans. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And I see a lot of that going on here at Outlook. I love it. Take delight in honoring each other. Have some parties. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. We need to be hopeful people. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who curse you and persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Never be wise in your own eyes. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lonely. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that is beautiful. That is how Christians fight. I am not saying in this sermon that we can't fight back against evil, but this is how we fight. We fight with God's weapons. When we trust God to end the ugliness of evil in the world and allow the Holy Spirit to invade and check our hearts and churches, we weaken evil by offering a strong alternative. Things like boycotting and social media shaming, violence and demonizing people don't. The world sorely needs an alternative. We offer it when we live out the beauty and hope of the gospel with the Spirit's help. Now I wanna finish telling the rest of the story I started earlier about our time in East Africa. It helps illustrate, I think, about how God uses our everyday lives, walking with him, to bring about the good he desires. We lived right next to a village and everything, everything we did was visible. We took baths at night right after the sun went down uh, out of a black barrel that water had warmed during the very hot days and we just stood there on a little mat and if anybody walked by, they could see us but we, they also knew what we were doing and they're very good about maintaining other people's privacy. We didn't even have an outhouse for a year. So one night, after we had settled in, we heard a cough outside. And a cough is kind of the, at least in that place, the African way of knocking on someone's door. One of our village chief's four wives came to get Doug's help. The young teenage wife of a very old man at a nearby village had swallowed concentrated cattle dip trying commit suicide. She was the newest wife of this drunk and abusive man and she couldn't take it anymore. Doug went and gave her an antidote and thank God it worked. She lived. The next morning another of the village chief's wives came by to talk about what had happened with the younger wife. Ngotopano was my friend and she was a village leader, thoughtful and compassionate. She'd let us know if somebody was sick or needed help because we had the only car. So she would say, that lady over there, she just had a baby. Like, could you go fill up some jerry cans with water so that she doesn't have to do that? And that would be really great. So we learned to listen to her. This morning, she was upset and troubled and uh, just hopeless as she talked about the state of marriage among her people. She said to me, we're stupid. Our husbands don't love us and we don't respect our husbands. And that was a shocking admission. I was really surprised because people didn't usually tell us, you know, air their dirty laundry to us for sure. 
Then she told me, but you, you respect your husband and he loves you. Now I can promise you we were not shiny happy people. It surprised me that she could pick up the relationship between my husband and I from the kind of way we lived. I can tell you if you had been there, you might have questioned it. <laughs> Just from the uh, you know, outdoor baths and all that kind of stuff. I can remember that I was heard one time, this is the kind of thing people got to overhear from our side, I was washing dishes outside because we really didn't have an inside at that time and I uh, picked up a pot and it had bees underneath it. We kept bees to have honey. And that, those bees stung me and I was mad. It was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And man, I let out a string of Maasai, the most fluent I had ever spoken the whole time we were there. And so, uh, yeah, they knew, they saw a lot in us. But Ngotopano had seen something good something she wanted. And so, since she brought it up, I told her, when your husbands follow Jesus, they will love their wives and care for their children. She said, that'll never happen. I assured her it would, because I had seen it happen in villages just like hers. I told her how Christian men who beat their wives if the mud roof leaked, started putting tin roofs on their house so their wives wouldn't have to climb up there with wet mud and dung and spread it out over the roof. They started replacing that with tin. She couldn't believe it, but it happened and it started with her husband who was baptized not long afterwards. We had to leave, but a small church was started. Ngotopano taught the children songs and scripture, which they shared with us a decade later when we went back for a visit, and it was beautiful. Friends, God knows we live in dark times. He hears our cries. He hears our prayers. He sees, I think about this often, God sees things that we have no idea that are so dark and I feel bad for God. He knows. He knows the fear and violence and devastation evil brings. He knows because he experienced it personally. When he suffered the brutality of the cross, it looked like evil won. It looked like God failed. But three days later, God turned it around. And he will not only end evil, he will bring good from it. He is with us to the end. So while we wait, while we endure, while we pray, let's remember Ending evil is God's job. Our job is to keep evil from overcoming us and instead to overcome evil with good. Let's pray together and then let's go out and live our beautiful hope in Jesus Christ together. Dear Father, you are good and you hear us and you know what we deal with and you are going to end evil. Lord, help us to live out this beautiful gospel that you have given us. Help us to remember our hope and to live generously and to live confidently and to live fearlessly knowing that you are taking care of it all. Lord, we love you and we trust you 
and we ask for your wisdom and grace as we navigate these dark times. We uh, ask all of this in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, your son and our savior, amen.